Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Hello, everybody. This is Mike McKinnon, and I'm here talking with the AANA CEO, Dr. Randall Moore. We're going to talk a little bit today, like a conversation about the future of healthcare, anesthesia services as we move down the road, and how things are changing in the government that may affect our profession. Uh, Dr. Moore, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here. I appreciate it. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about where anesthesia is headed. And I think many people are really concerned about the future of our profession, both physician anesthesiologists, CRNAs, you know, and everybody in healthcare. What do you think we're headed down the road toward in the next 5, 10, 15 years, as it pertains to anesthesia specifically, but also in general? Yeah, certainly. I I think that the concern is valid, right? I mean, if you think about what's happening in healthcare, Healthcare and, and the disruptive forces that are impacting us, uh, we, we would be crazy uh, uh, or uh, myopic not to be concerned about what's happening. I, I, I tend to view it from a lens of opportunity. Uh, everything, not everything, but a lot of what I'm seeing in healthcare uh, is uh, positioning CRNAs very well for uh, the future. I, I think for the first time in the history of healthcare, a common sense economic drivers. Are starting to impact anesthesia care delivery in a way that positions CRNAs pretty well. Now, I think clearly our physician colleagues, our physician anesthesiologist colleagues, I should say, uh, may not share my view when it comes to that. But you can't you can't deny math and, and you can't deny economics, and and, and both of those are, are, are positioned us quite quite well. Absolutely, there's a definite force, downward economic force, on healthcare. And it's going to require, and there's increasing access, demand and, and need for access. And effect, effectively, it's going to require everyone to be working to the top of their license to, to expand that access to care and do it in a way that we can, as a country, afford. Because we can't afford to continue to do it in the way we're doing it now. I, I, I agree. And, and, and we're at the juncture now where these debates about who is viewed as the, as the leader of the team or um, adhering to or maintaining arbitrary restrictions on providers, those arguments are becoming more and more difficult to support when you see what's happening in, in economics and, and certainly a long history of evidence around the profession or the specialty. It, it really is, I think, going to be very difficult for people who oppose CRNAs and other advanced practice providers. And I, I, I would certainly put in our nurse practitioner and our 
nurse midwives and, and our physician assistant colleagues into that mix, it, it, fighting these scope of battle, scope of practice battles are going to increasingly be a lose, lose proposition uh, for our physician colleagues. We're heading down a road where there's a domino effect occurring. You know, the hospital down down the other side of town is all of a sudden having CRNAs in a in a new kind of practice model, which isn't really new, but seems new for the area. Where you may have one physician anesthesiologist that's there, a political guy who just wants the best for his or her patients, and CRNAs are providing the service in the OR to 10, 15, 20 ORs, and that other hospital that doesn't have that sort of model is paying a subsidy in the millions of dollar range and they know they can't continue to afford to pay it. At some point in time, the dam has to break and I think we are right there. Yeah, I, I think I think what you're characterizing is, is an inflection point, right? Where you can, you can continue to do the same thing and, and face disaster or you can evolve into a different model. And I mean, the good news, I mean, there's, there is a lot of good news uh, despite what you read and, and what you hear around healthcare. The good news is that the demand for anesthesia professionals has never been higher. Uh, so that's, you know, there's, there's job security there. That, that's great. Uh, the access to care that CRNAs provide positions pretty well, uh, I think, for long-term relevance and impact on, on the market. And, so you know, it's interesting when you see these, these fights at the state level or the national level where we're, we're, we're arguing about scope of practice and supervision. It, to me, it's it's become increasingly more clear that we're, we are having the wrong debate right now, uh, right? Because we have a, we're in the midst of a, a, a workforce shortage that's only going to get worse. So we should be talking about how can we work together to meet the growing demand on healthcare delivery uh, in this country. And that's not an argument or a debate or a conversation that's happening in a substantive way uh, with our colleagues at the AFA. Absolutely. I just had uh, Dr. Dean Masrick on the uh, podcast. He's a physician anesthesiologist, said the exact same thing. He said, there's so many things that we as two separate organizations could be working on. And one of the ones he pointed to immediately was the workforce shortage. He said, you know, there's about 50,000 roughly CRNAs, 50,000 physician anesthesiologists. But at the end of the day, that's not going to be enough. And they need to get to the areas where they're needed most. And that and that's going to be the, the problem that we're going to have to solve, and we can't do it in isolation of each other. It, and it really is unfortunate because you know, when I try to have these conversations with our colleagues, is you know they, they want to focus on well who's 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 viewed as the leader of the team, or you know you know physician led care is the only kind of care that that they could support. Where you know it's unfortunate because we could be working together to design anesthesia care delivery for the future, and. And, and we're not having that conversation because we're too fixated on the past. And, and to be clear, the, the future is not going to be heavily restricted models in which providers are not practicing at the top of their license. That, that's just not sustainable. So let's work together to find out, to, to work something up that is sustainable. Well, that ship has sailed. I mean, we're, we're at that point now where you're starting to see hospitals truly struggle. And in 2012, um, MGMA actually did a, a survey of hospitals talking about anesthesia subsidies specifically. And 70% of the hospitals who are paying subsidies for anesthesia care team restrictive models of one to four or less or physician only said they could not continue to maintain that subsidy. And here we are seven, eight years almost later, and we're still kind of limping along as a slow change occurs. But I think you're right. I think this is an inflection point where things are going to start to happen fast. Because if a hospital's looking at the difference between closing their doors and not providing service for their area, for their community, 
or changing their models, they're going to do it. And, and that's true of all portions of the hospital service, whether we're talking about our physician um, and assistant colleagues, or we're talking about our nurse practitioner colleagues, or whether we're talking about anyone in the hospital who is not currently being allowed to work up to their full scope. I mean, I think that's where we're headed. Yeah, and certainly and you put yourself in the shoes of a, of a hospital administrator, right? So right now we know that about 30 hospitals per year are closing in this country. And, and when, and when they do their financial modeling, they say, you know, the, the gold standard right now is 4% profit margin. 4%. I mean, the, the, the margins are so razor thin, uh, just to keep the doors open and the lights on that, you know, you would be, you know, viewed as incompetent if you were not looking at your expense. And, and, and anesthesia, anesthesia subsidies are a huge expense. On, on the balance sheet of, of many hospitals in this country. And we need to be working together to figure out, well, how, how can we be viewed uh, as an asset rather than a, than a liability? And, uh, and because there's increasingly healthcare decision makers are, are becoming intolerant of large subsidies. I know that the ASA is is trying to, you know, trying to push for an additional um, assistant provider anesthesiologist assistance. Nothing wrong with them. Good people. I've met a number of them. But at the end of the day, there's 2,600 of them today. The problem is now we're past the point where, you know, creating more of the same model, anesthesia care team, one to four or less, not cost effective, not providing access to care with a limited provider in addition to that. I think we're past that. And if we don't start having people work to full scope of practice where you've got CRNAs doing their own cases, and yeah, there might be a physician anesthesiologist there who's a great resource for those CRNAs, but there's no one to four ratio. We got to pump out the cases because patients need surgery and that's not getting less. It's only increasing. And unfortunately, what we're getting paid for those exact same services is getting less. So you've got to find a way to be more efficient. And ultimately, I think CRNAs are positioned the best to do that. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's what the market demands. So right now, the market is demanding a full scope of practice provider that uh, can work to the top of his or her license, can fill the gap, particularly in rural and underserved areas, which we we, we fit we fit that those categories very nicely. Uh, what doesn't work, and which is going to be increasingly more difficult to sustain, is a model by which there's close medical direction, uh, restrictive utilization of providers in a way that does not increase capacity or increase access, that's going to be very difficult to to maintain moving forward. It is. And, you know, a medical direction model requires meeting seven TAFRA rules, which physician anesthesiologist study, Epstein study done at Thomas Jefferson University, where I went to school, you know, has shown that over and over again, the risk for Medicare fraud is high. And if the, you know, if you, there's two words that a hospital administrator never wants to hear in a sentence, and that is Medicare and fraud. Because they don't, they don't just look at one thing, right? They come in and take a look at the whole department and maybe other things, and they can go back seven to eight years. So ultimately, why would you take a risk, a financial risk, but also potentially a safety risk? You know, if, if what, if what the ASA is saying is that, AAs can work in a one to four, but because the physician anesthesiologist there, as they said in their 2018 study, it mitigates any difference between the CRNA and the AA. Okay, I can see that being possible because physician anesthesiologists are full scope providers and absolutely talented. But at the end of the day, if they're not going to be there 35% of the time in a one to two ratio and 99% of the time in a one to three ratio per that study, if something goes wrong during that period where they can't be there, I mean, that's a risk. And it's a risk for hospitals, not just patients and providers. 
And so I think there's damage there to the expansion idea and the, and the, the cost effectiveness if you don't have providers who can do it on their own. Yeah. Well, one of the first things that I did when I, I, I was a chief CRNA or director of anesthesia before I moved into this role, one of the first things we did, right after, I mean, right after I started, I, I moved the, the department to a QZ billing model, which didn't cause us to remove the anesthesiologists. In fact, the anesthesiologists were happier because they were used in a more common sense fashion as perioperative consultants. So we immediately mitigated all of the, all of the potential risk, and, and there was risk. Any model that uses metal, medical direction has significant fraudulent risk because those, those requirements are so difficult to maintain. But we did, and we increased the efficiency, we increased the, uh, uh, the, the revenue because we were able to do more cases and we were using the anesthesiologists differently and we're using the CRNAs differently. It really is uh, a win-win when those models are implemented because it demonstrates what happens when you use providers in the way they were trained to be used. Absolutely. Especially when you're working in more of a collaborative fashion than a leader of the team fashion. Work together and, yeah. you know, lead together. Not precisely. I think so. As we're moving forward here, um, you know, recently uh, the Trump administration put out an executive order, and that executive order, you know, to summarize it, effectively said that everyone should be working to the top of their license to expand access to care in a cost-efficient manner. I mean, that's basically the crux of that portion of the EO. How do you see that affecting? Uh, anesthesia delivery down the road, where we've already seen CMS put out a final rule that eventually uh, passed, where physician assistants no longer require supervision to bill at the federal level. Now, it's still going to become a state issue, but at the federal level, that's gone. That's a huge hurdle for them. And frankly, they do a good job, so they deserve to not have that silly uh, roadblock in the way. Where do you see that impacting anesthesia? So it's interesting. I, I think what we're seeing from the administration, the Trump administration, and I would say Alex Azar, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services in particular, is a desire to, uh, you know, Alex Azar, who is, is an old school Republican. He believes in competition. He believes in free markets. He believes in referring to the states relative to uh, regulations and laws. And, and, all of those things are music to our ears, right? Because we believe in competition. We believe in utilizing providers to the highest uh, of, their, of their license. We believe in deferring a state law. All of those things, to me, indicate that they're moving in the right direction. Politics being politics and, and the environment we're in is, is, um, is pretty dynamic. It's difficult for me to predict exactly what's going to come out of this executive order. But we do know that uh, the president has time boxed this, right? So he has about 11 months uh, to, to, to implement the components of that Medicare executive order. So the clock is ticking. And anytime there's a sense of urgency, that's usually, usually good things happen in government. Uh, if there isn't a sense of urgency, usually nothing happens in government. So we, we, you know, we're, we're excited about that. Uh, the, the agency has, has for some time now, uh, I'm talking about HHS and CMS, has have been talking about deferring to state law relative to non-physician and advanced practice providers. They've been talking about removing, uh, you know, restrictions or barriers, and they've been talking about moving people to the top of their license. Now, if CRNAs aren't positioned to benefit from that, I don't know who is. You know, I mean, that checks every box, for, you know, for us, and we've been mm-hmm. building a very compelling case uh, for a, a very long time 
that CRNAs, one, increase access to care. Uh, two, our outcomes are just as good as our physician colleagues when we're working together or independent of each other. And three, we are um, instrumental in delivering care in underserved areas in this country. So I'm optimistic that the agency is going to continue to move in the right direction and that they're going to do what they are have been telegraphing for some time now, which is remove restrictions. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, from a state perspective, you know, many states, obviously, you know, this results in moving things to the state to make the decision, which is basically what a union is all about, which is the U.S. And so when they get to the state level, do you foresee generally states being receptive to the idea of removing these barriers? Because just because CMS removes one barrier, let's say, or HHS, there's going to be many barriers at the state level. Do you foresee this carrying over at the state side when CMS makes a determination like that? I think so. I, and I think what will happen, it's already, what is already happening now is our, our physician colleagues, at least ones who are paying attention, understand that increasingly these battles, if you want to characterize them as a battle, and unfortunately I think you have to, are, are moving to the state level because the government has been indicating, has been moving and deferring to the states on these decisions. So you're going to see an, an increased intensity of let pro-CRNA and anti-CRNA, I would even say APRN, legislation being pushed uh, because that's where the future fights are going to be. And, and that's where right now, I mean, if you just look at the intensity of what's happening at the state level, it's increasing significantly. This year, we've, had a, we've seen a, a market increase in the amount of legislation. Next year, we're going to see the same. And it's going to play itself out there. Which is again unfortunate because it's it's a losing battle. <laughs> that the states are under the same pressure that the federal government is relative to healthcare. Right? They need to increase access to care. There is not enough money in the system to support current spending, much less the projected increase in future spending. So what's going to happen over time is states are going to modernize their rules and regulations relative to non-physician advanced practice providers. In the interim. Uh, a lot of people are going to be hemorrhaging dollars towards lobbyists to try to prevent that from happening. And in the arc, arc of history, it's going to happen. Uh, it, it, so, you know, if I could put myself in the shoes of, of, a, of our physician colleagues who are involved in advocacy, I, I would say you can continue to fight that fight, and, and, and I understand why. Uh, or you could reallocate that time, energy, money on proactive measures in collaboration with other providers to address the real problems that this country are facing right now. Oh, absolutely. And I would argue that it's even more pressure on the states, particularly the ones who chose not to take um, the ACA uh, additional money. Like a good example of that might be Texas, where they have more rural hospital closings than almost any other state. And the reason why is because they chose not to take Medicaid expansion. And by doing that, you know, you know, you can argue whether Medicaid expansion is sustainable, and there's lots of arguments for either side. But the ultimate result is decreased access to care, which ends up in higher costs, no matter who is paying for the Medicaid expansion. If hospitals are not doing more in the outlying areas or they go away, those patients are coming in, backlog of cases occur, occur delaying cases getting done, patients getting sicker. These things happen. It, it just costs more. And I think that, you know, I, I, I get it. I get why the, why the ASA would fight against this. I would too. If I was on that side, I'd feel the same way. Hey, look, you know, I'm important too, and I think that this is how it should be. I get it. Uh, but ultimately, a watershed moment has to come where you recognize where the ball is rolling. And if you don't start heading in that direction, you're, 
you're not going to be in the picture. And, and that's the reality. And that's where we have to come together and start having these discussions between our organizations and be realistic. And, you know, don't, you know, don't put it, don't record it. Don't just have a conversation and say, Hey, you know, where are we headed? We, we obviously can't do it the way we're doing it. And the fights that you're spending money on are probably not going to be sustainable. So what, what's our future look like? And is that something you guys have talked about? Yeah, I, I, for sure. I, I'll give you a brief history. So I, I've been in my role for a little bit over two years. And when I first started, uh, we entered into a series of conversations with our ASA counterparts. This was during Bruce Weiner's year, who was president of the AANA when I, right when I started. And we were having what I would characterize as, as pretty positive conversations. There wasn't a lot of uh, high, you know, it wasn't a lot of deep exploration of, of collaboration, but there was definitely a willingness to have conversations. And what's happened over the last six months or so is that that's deteriorated. And I think it's deteriorated, that relationship has deteriorated for a few reasons. Uh, one, what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes or so is having impact on us and having impact on them. And I think it's pressurizing uh, both organizations in, in good ways and in bad ways. So I think they're feeling the pressure. I'm talking about ASA. Uh, we certainly are. And, and there's concern that, you know, they're losing their grip, I suspect. Uh, the second is that the ANA has changed its approach to advocacy and messaging over the last year or so. And I don't know that the ASA really cares for it. Uh, so, uh, you know, what, what we're not going to do is apologize for being pro-CRNA, but, you know, and we're not anti-anyone, but we, we're certainly uh, in, in, the, in the business of supporting, protecting, and advancing CRNA interests. So I think because of that, we, we've seen a deterioration in, in the relationship again. I, I hope that we can come together and say, all right, you know, there's big things happening. We're, we're getting swept into this, whether we like it or not. Uh, we can continue to go forward alone and separately. And, and or we can work together and identify and create or create our path forward. I, I'm not optimistic for that, uh, unfortunately. But I, I it, you know, if they call, well, I'll pick up the phone. And, and I know that my board feels the same. Well, we're willing to have that conversation, but we both have to be at the table uh, to, to make that happen. Yeah, and I mean, I understand their difficulty. I mean, they're just trying to do what their members want them to do, and ultimately, it's hard to. Sure make major changes to how things have always been, no matter what we're talking about. I mean, you know, when you feel like you should be the leader of the team and you've been told that your whole career, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's just not where we're headed. And so at some point in time, we have to have the hard discussion and and that's, that means different, different types of anesthesia care models. And it doesn't mean physician anesthesiologists won't have jobs or that they won't be involved. It just means different from what we have today. I mean, some of my closest friends are physician anesthesiologists and they all feel the same way. They, they know it's coming and they recognize that, you know, everyone should work to the top of their license. Cause if we don't, that only harms patients in the long run. Ultimately. Yeah. And I, I would have, you know, I, I I certainly don't want there to be a perception that I'm, that I'm bashing the ASA because I, I, I totally understand and empathize uh, with their position. And, and membership organizations are inherently complex um, and inherently inert, right? It's really difficult sometimes to, to change an organization that is led by volunteer members because they, they don't necessarily have uh, an understanding or invested in and, and the fact that things are changing so rapidly and, and, and that in order to be successful and relevant in the future, you have to be agile and 
membership organizations historically are not agile. And if you look at what's happening in terms of disruption in healthcare, this is the time that you really have to be agile and, and, and innovate and change the way that you approach advocacy because if you don't, you're going to be in trouble with your members and you're going to be in trouble in healthcare. So we're taking the position that, look, you know, we're on this, we're on this crazy ride and, and, and either we want to have a seat at the table or we don't. And for us, in order for us to be successful, we have to be very aggressive in our advocacy. I, I don't remember a time in, in healthcare, my career where a, you know, for instance, the, this Trump administration executive order was time boxed in such a short period as a year. I mean, there's certainly been lots of executive orders or even discussions or directives, but very few of them. I don't remember any that have been time boxed for a year. That is a fast period of time for a government to make major changes, an agency to make major changes. And that just underscores the the critical situation, I think, that the healthcare system is in for trying to do more with less. I mean, ultimately, that's where it is. Yeah, think about this, Mike, and you talk about that sense of urgency and what's going on in Washington, D.C., and, and the fact that we are truly living in remarkable times. So we have a president who is actively being impeached by the House of Representatives. We are beginning actively and aggressively beginning a presidential election, through, and, and the uh, 2020 um, Democratic primary is heating up. And within that primary, we have two camps, right? We have we have the Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders camp who want to completely re-engineer health care to a single payer. And then you have the Joe Biden camp who wants to continue to make improvements. And then you have an executive order, which is clearly President Trump's attempt to establish a series of, of wins through executive action because there will be no legislation, zero legislation moving between now and the end of this presidential election because it's, there's just no oxygen left in Washington, D.C., unless it's an intensely bipartisan uh, piece of legislation, legislation, like maybe, maybe uh, drug pricing. But even then, it's, it's so toxic in D.C. It, I see, the opioid yeah. crisis. Oh, yeah, I mean, exactly. There's not going to be anything that's going to move. So we are in really remarkable times right now. And the next year is going to be instrumental in determining what healthcare is going to look like. And depending on who, who wins the Democratic primary and then who wins this presidential election, it will be absolutely pivotal. I agree. You know, I think as we, you know, as we're talking about, you know, where these Democratic candidates are headed, um, I, I, w- I want to say this is the first time I've ever heard an acceptance from a greater percentage of people about the idea of moving to what would be closer to socialized medicine, Medicare for all. And boy, that, that looks very different to what we're currently doing. Yeah. I mean, as a Canadian, I came from true socialized medicine. And I can tell you those are significant differences that are going to impact the entire way healthcare is run. And, you know, it could be, there's going to be positive and negatives for everyone, both the, our physician colleagues and us. And, and so this is where the, very, the, the challenge is moving to a single-payer system is that when other countries and every other modern country that we compare ourselves to has a single-payer healthcare system. We are an anomaly. The challenge is when they moved to a single-payer system, the consequences, the economic consequences to the private sector were, were n- not nearly as great as they are to us, right? So right now, 18% of our gross domestic product is spent on healthcare, and that number is going to be north of 20% by 2025, easy. The, the, the number two, the second closest to that is Switzerland. 
they pay 12, I think 12% of their gross domestic product on healthcare. And 100% of that country is under a single payer uh, healthcare system. Whereas we have 28 million people who have no healthcare and tens of millions who are underinsured. The challenge is, we, I think most people would say, yes, you know, in this country, everybody should have access to healthcare. It sounds good. The question is, who's going to pay for it? <laughs> you know, because, it all comes down to money. Yeah, who's going to pay for this? And, and that's where I've not seen from my perspective from the Elizabeth Warren plan, not that I've read the 2,000 pages, but what I've read from the, you know, the synopsis is that it's a little light on how this thing is going to be paid for, you know, $20 trillion over 10 years or whatever it is. That's a lot of money to be, that we need to find. So it would be really interesting how this plays out. If she gets the nomination or if Bernie gets the nomination, how will the Repub- how will the public respond to a real debate around single payer? Well, you know, I mean, the old saying is, is the answer is money. What was the question? Yeah. <laughs> you know, ultimate, ultimately that's where we're at. I mean, no one is going to say no politician, no one in healthcare that, oh yeah, you know, I mean, hey, if you can't pay, you just die. No one's going to say that, right? Because that's not, that's not American, right? That's not a humanistic quality. Yeah. But we can't afford to do everything for everyone all the time. It just, it just doesn't work that way. That's not, that's not the economy. Yeah. You know, when you're talking over 20% of our GDP in healthcare for the system we have, you know, the question is, where's the money going to come from to emulate that system in a single payer, and no one seems to know, except for increased taxes, which a large swath of the country is not going to be for, yeah. no matter what it gets them. And so, you know, if models like that, if if change like that is coming, then there has to be a real intricate plan for what that looks like, because not only is it a part of our GDP and what we're spending to to develop it or to pay for it, but it's also a huge part of the economies of cities, towns, and states. Oh, yeah. You remove a hospital from a town and that town may go away, you know? And so it may be the largest, my town is a perfect example, second only to Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) It may be the largest employer in the town. And so that place goes away and the town is economically devastated. So, you know, that also gets taken into account when you look at it from a political perspective and for what's good for people. I mean, people need jobs. People need to be able to to get health care. Those things all go together. So it's just got a lot of downstream effects, and I'm not sure how that gets played out, but it can't be a decision that's made lightly. Well, certainly, if you look at Elizabeth Warren's plan, she, she's stating that, you know, she's not going to increase the taxes on, on the middle class, uh, which would, you know, be a political suicide for her if she said, you know, the, the alternative of that. The question is, how do you generate the revenue to support a single-payer system without raising taxes on the middle class? Uh, certainly, and it's, it's clearly called out in her plan, is that the providers, us, and, um, and hospital health systems and, and other healthcare providers are going to take a haircut. And there's no other way to fund it. And I mean, that is undeniable, right? So... As, as we start to have these debates as providers and as consumers and as Americans, we have to think about what that means for us professionally and personally and, and what the country needs. It's going to be fascinating, this debate. Generally, when you have um, Medicare for all socialized medicine style systems, you see a lot of centralization occur, which, which results in yeah. uh, shrinking the access in favor of smaller uh, t- limited services outside of the large city centers, 
Well, you know, a large percentage of America is rural and so is the population. So you've got a lot of people who rely on those services, not just for jobs, but just to be healthy. And, you know, as we look down the road at, you know, uh, Healthy People 2020 and all these different initiatives that we're moving, it requires services to actually exist to make those things happen. Mm. And so, you know, it sounds great in theory, but if those patients get even more sick because they have no basic access to healthcare, and now they come in instead of at the beginnings of a disease process in the, in the, you know, midst of a crisis that actually costs the system significantly more. So there has to be some sort of a, you know, a plan long before there is a change. Yeah, absolutely. And and you, you, I think perfectly outlined the challenge that we have is that the system that we have is designed to take care of sick people instead of preventing people from becoming becoming sick. And that, you know, it, as you know, it's astronomically more expensive to take care of a sick person than it is to prevent them from being ill. And, uh, and oh boy, you know, how, how do we re-engineer our healthcare system from um, intervention to population health, which is what I think we're talking about. Uh, I, I, I would love to see, you know, for the future of this country, and obviously as a, as a healthcare provider and as a consumer, that pivot. How, how will that happen? Who will pay for it? And what will be the consequences to us and to other providers? Well, it's a, it's a massive shift. And, and, you know, right now you're paid better for taking care of sick people and doing procedures right. than you are for keeping people healthy. And so why would a physician or a nurse practitioner go into family practice if they're going to get paid a third of what they could be to be a surgeon? Or someone who takes care of those sick patients? I, I get it. I mean, ultimately, with those kind of loans that these guys are coming out with? Yeah. They've got to think about that. Yeah, it's 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 a challenge, and you look at the disruption that's happening in in primary care and urgent care. It, it, it's really interesting to see, you know, clearly Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, and you, you can keep on going. They're positioning themselves to to take over primary care and urgent care in this country, um, and and it, that's going to be very disruptive, and I think in a good way. Actually, I mean, if you you think about, you know, look at the way healthcare is delivered now, right? So it's like, I talk about, like, it's like going to the grocery store. You want to buy a loaf of bread. You have no idea how much that loaf of bread costs, but you buy it. You take it home, you eat it. And a month later, you get a, uh, a bill from the grocery store for $453 for a loaf of bread, right? That's exactly what we're getting for healthcare. There's no, tr- very little price transparency. Uh, that what you pay for uh, is, frequently highly inflated to compensate for people who are not paying for the health care. And it's just a, a profoundly broken system. So now you think about, you know, when you, you order something online off of Amazon, how ridiculously convenient it is to go to Amazon and purchase whatever. People are going to start using their health care in that, in, that, in that way, in that instead of the old school way, which is that you could call your nurse practitioner and your primary care physician and, and try to get some time on their calendar, try to get your kid in the office so he's not feeling well. Now you're just going to say, you know what? I have an earache. I'm going to get my car and I'm going to drive down the street. I'm going to see a nurse practitioner. I'm going to be in and out in 15 minutes or less with a prescription. That is going to, I think, completely revolutionize and significantly disrupt healthcare. If people are concerned about convenience and cost, Right, convenience, cost, and quality are the triangle upon which patients and and consumers make decisions. Right, it, you know, I, I go to 
for instance, I go to Harbor Freight because I can get it quickly. I don't expect it to last more than a couple of times, but I'll go there. But when I want something that I need that's important, well, I'll go to Lowe's or I'll go to Ace Hardware and get something that lasts longer. I may pay a little more for it, but it's convenient, it's quality, and I get it for a half decent price. And that's what we're looking at for healthcare because you know, you, you made a point there about price transparency, and there is a massive push in the ambulatory surgery community to put their prices on their websites in comparison to what the hospital is charging down the road. And the reason they're doing that is because they can do it for cheaper. I mean, already ASCs get paid 60%, they're 40% less than a hospital for the exact same facility fee procedure. And so they're already costing the system less the, the second you walk in the door. But it's also going to cost you less because they'll offer you a cash price that's less than the hospital. And that's where we're headed, right? This is, this is the market taking control and competitive market at that. Without a doubt. I, mean, you know, the, I think what we're, we're, we're talking about is consumerism. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and it, it's going to be involuntary, right? You know, if you want to be successful as a, health, as a health facility, and I would say as a healthcare provider, you're going to have to be transparent about the cost associated with care. The market is going to demand it. And, and by I mean the market, I mean the consumer. Uh, because consumers, patients, are increasingly taking on more of the financial burden for their own care. I mean, if you think about the increase in, in, in premiums or co-pays that, that it, it, deductibles for the last five years, I mean, they're going up significantly. So you and I are on the hook for our own care in ways that we weren't five, six years ago. And that's going to change behavior. And, and people are going to price shop. So if you want to be successful, if you want to be relevant, you're going to have to compete on price. Well, yeah, it's it's coming, right? And and so, you know, there, there's patients now that are that have insurance but have a $10,000 deductible and they are shopping cash prices. Right. Because they're they're at the point where the deductible cost is more than they can afford for their whatever, and so they can get it for a third that cost, but they can afford at least to pay that. Mhm. So they're paying cash. I mean, it's become it's becoming a cash system in that regard for many insured patients with high deductible plans that ultimately now are disaster plans, right? Not care plans, right? Absolutely, and and that's the brave new world that we're in. And 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 anyone who can compete effectively in that environment is going to win. And and the folks who can't, who refuse to evolve, adapt, overcome, are, are going to be um, well. They're not going to be successful. Ultimately, yes, because when you're sitting there comparing cost, it's going to be a big deal. I mean, there's some people that are going to be willing to pay for a name brand product, but if the same product isn't the same name brand, but is exactly equal quality, gets the job done, makes you happy and takes care of you, and it's a third the cost, half the cost, you're heading there. I mean, it, that's just how it is for 95% of Americans. And so, you know, they just want outcomes. They're not so worried about the name at the end of the day, you know, and that's where, that's where we're headed. And I think that's where we're headed in all services in healthcare. I totally agree. You know, if you're told you're going to have to pay more to go to Mayo versus the hospital down the road, but the outcomes are the same, you're going to the hospital down the road. I, I agree. How do you think that that will translate into uh, how that impacts the average CRNA in this country and in, in whatever time frame you think, five years, 10 years, what's it going to look like? How will this disruption ultimately come down and, and, and impact the individual CRNA. What do you see happening? 
you know, when, when I look down the road at what's going to happen as we see price transparency, as we see, you know, uh, removals of restrictions and barriers, both at the federal and state level, what I see is, is an open market for CRNAs, really. Uh, so you're going to see more hospitals that are doing maybe physician anesthesiologist only care or anesthesia care team in a one to four restrictive model transition their practice into open models. And they're going to have to because they're not going to be able to get the subsidy from the hospital that they used to be able to get it in order to subsidize the cost of having more physician anesthesiologists. And so for CRNAs, I think it's going to be a huge boon, both, both at the practice level. In other words, instead of not being allowed to do blocks or not being allowed to play central lines or not being allowed to put a patient to sleep by yourself for arbitrary reasons, none of which relate to evidence or facts, that will just be the norm yeah. and it'll be expected. And if you can't do it, you're not going to be able to work in these places that are trying to, you know, move the ball forward. And uh, if you're someone, if you're someone who promotes those restrictions, you're going to have less and less practice options. Now, ultimately for CRNAs, I think that will come with a slight increase in pay, probably not a lot, but a slight increase in pay for more responsibility, more work, more expectation, right? You should be paid for the service you provide and increased number of jobs out there. Um, And for physician anesthesiologists, it's going to be a benefit, I think as well, because, that that push economically over time will start to eliminate the constant headbutting between our professions. You know, a perfect example would be the military model. Mm-hmm. You don't see a lot of physician anesthesiologists and CRNAs fighting with each other over whether you or not you can induce a patient. And the answer to that is because the politics are less and everyone's paid the same. You know, you're paid to do your case. You're paid your hourly, whatever that is. You're not paid differently because you supervise someone or because you don't. And so ultimately, everyone working to the top of their skill set is the benefit, is a boon for that system. And I, that's what I see coming. Well, I, I, I agree. And I, and I, I would argue that, that it's already happening. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, one of the cool things about my job is I get to talk to really informed and interesting people like yourself and other folks who uh, have the opportunity to see what's happening at the 100,000 foot level and, and help translate that, right, into to what that really means for us. And, and what I'm seeing, you know, I was just this last week, we were at an ANA meeting, the ANA Leadership Summit, and we had several CRNA business entrepreneurs there, and, and I was picking their brains, like, what are you seeing? And, and what, with, without exception, every single person in there who is an entrepreneur, who, you know, who has their business from small, from small practices to, to very large, to indicate that they cannot keep up with the demand. That if they, you know, if they could replicate themselves, uh, they could grow their business exponentially. The, the limiting factor right now for growth expansion is provider shortage, and because it, it's un, the, the potential is unlimited. the The number of requests for proposals that are going out the door for anesthesia services are are very high, and some of those are coming from. Um, Facilities who, as we discussed at the beginning of the call, who've decided they're not interested in paying a large subsidy or looking to decrease their exposure on the subsidy. Some of it is, uh, and many of these RFPs are, are related to large anesthesia management companies who've secured contracts, overpromised and underdelivered. So all of this churn, this disruption, is creating enormous opportunity for CRNAs. And that's one thing, you know, for any of our listeners, here today, if you're interested, even remotely interested in being a business owner, uh, now's the time to make it happen. Uh, the, uh, the environment is so right. There's so much opportunity. This is the time to make it happen. 
because the opportunities are almost limitless right now. Small hospitals, for example, my own, it's a small 89-bed hospital, we're not talking a large facility, opens a cancer center for the local community that otherwise wouldn't have existed if they had to spend $3 million to $4 million, which is what it would cost to have an anesthesia care team at this facility. You know, when faced with those choices, if you're flush with cash all the time and things are going great, which is not our healthcare system, when faced with those choices of whether or not you expand services, you know, these small community hospitals run on razor thin margins, but they also run on a mission to provide um, the community with access to health care and services. That cancer center wouldn't exist if that's what we would have to have, or it would be much harder to have. You know, the cost wouldn't be there. And hospitals are facing that choice all across the country. So they're looking for ways to decrease their costs in order to maintain or expand other service lines. And, and that's just a reality. And for CRNAs who, like you said, are interested in business, this is the time. I mean, the key for them is that they can find enough providers and then secondly, secondly, that that they can that those providers can provide the services needed. That's ultimately the two things. I absolutely. I frequently think about, you know, because before I was in this job, I was in hospital administration. I, I ran a perioperative service line uh, in Illinois, in a health system in Illinois, and I always think about, well, what what would I be doing right now if I was still in that job or if I was a hospital CEO? And, and I, there's a reason why the turnover rate. For hospital C-suite executives is about 25%. I mean, it's the number is high and getting higher. It's because of all this disruption. And you think about what's happening in surgical care, right? So the economic engine in almost every hospital in this country is the operating room, followed by the emergency room. Right now, you're seeing a mass exodus of surgical and urgent care out of hospitals into these freestanding clinics. You know, I mean, in I mean, the, the proliferation of ambulatory surgery centers in this country and in urgent care centers is taking a significant amount of revenue away from these hospitals and health systems. And that's only exacerbating the economic pressure that they're already experiencing with declining reimbursement. It's, you know, there, we've had, what, 120 hospitals closed in the last eight to nine years in this country. That number is going to grow up, go up because of, of what's going on. And and that's certainly going to impact CRNAs. And, and you know, one of the predictions I, I, I think I have, and it's not that bold of a prediction because it's already happening, is, is that more and more of us, more and more CRNAs and anesthesiologists will be moving into that outpatient environment. And that's where, if I was an entrepreneur, uh, and I'm not, it, it would be creating business opportunities or finding business opportunities in the ambulatory surgery and the office-based market because those are going to grow up. Those are going to grow up exponentially. Look at the last the last few CMS changes, right? Starting in in January, you can do total knees for Medicare at surgery centers. That's a huge change. Total hips, total knees, total shoulders. Um, we already do those at our facility. Total shoulders, and then moving forward, there's also they're also going to be allowing um, cardiac uh, cath related things at at surgery centers, including you know balloons and stents and all that kind of stuff. These things, this is a big change, right? And so as that starts to change and that money moves away from the hospital, the hospital has to become more competitive. And ultimately, that's where we're headed. And, and ultimately, we're CRNAs are, are very well positioned to be successful in that environment. Exactly. I mean, that, that's exactly the truth. What, what, is your, what is your 
opinion. I, I know the ASA talks about this a lot, and it's a, it's a very true statement that, you know, we're paid like 26% roughly less for Medicare services than, than maybe our physician colleagues or other colleagues relate to. And it's true. I mean, if you look at the numbers, yeah, I talk to our surgeons all the time and they say, yeah, I don't mind getting Medicare. It pays pretty good. You know, and so I'm like, well, Medicare, unfortunately, doesn't pay us so great in comparison to uh, private insurance. And so where do you think we're heading with that? Well, I totally agree. I mean, the best way to explain it is it's all screwed up. I mean, if you think about how anesthesia services are evaluated and reimbursed by federal payers, it makes no sense. No sense. And, you know, know, I've heard it referred to as the 33% rule or the 33% phenomenon, which is which, you know, we get 33%. 33 cents on the dollar uh, and our other, our physician colleagues and other specialties get much more than that in terms of reimbursement for, from Medicare. It, it is, it's screwed up. Here's the problem. Uh, acknowledge, I acknowledge that the methodology behind the reimbursement for anesthesia services does not make sense. The challenge is that there's no one in Washington, D.C. right now talking about how to spend more money in, in Medicare spending. And so I, and I understand that, you know, in the conversations we've had with our ASA colleagues, this is important to them, and I understand why. And it's important to me, too. I, I don't like that our services are undervalued. The challenge is I'm not optimistic that that's going to be addressed in our lifetime. And, and Arguing for more money is just not a winning yeah. solution at this point. Yeah. Uh, I'm, certain, I'm certainly willing to... Um, to be involved in that discussion and to explore the possibilities to, to address that, which is unfair, but I'm not optimistic. No, I, I'm not either. In fact, I, I, I think that um, too much time spent on that is just wasted time because ultimately they've been doing it this way since the inception of CMS. I mean, it, that's how it has always been. And I don't see anyone starving on the street providing anesthesia now. I think it's not, I don't think it's fair. But it is what it is. And in one regard, when you're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, nurse anesthetists, it's a benefit to us. You know, we'll ultimately do those cases for less subsidy, even though we get paid that 33% or 26%. And so that's the reality. We certainly are. I I agree. I mean, in an environment where uh, the the decline, you know, the lower than, than I think, appropriate reimbursement does position CRNAs to be uh, more competitive because our cost structure is different, right? I mean, our compensation is less. I mean, we're, we're compensated well, but we're compensated less than our physician colleagues. And uh, we're able to, to work, I think, in other areas of the country, including rural and underserved areas. And we meet that need because of our compensation demands are different. Uh, so I agree. That positions as well uh, from a competitive differentiation perspective. What's your perspective on um, rural access to care when it comes to uh, critical access hospitals and rural pass-through funding? So rural pass-through funding, for those listening and aren't sure about it, it's for hospitals that that probably do, well, they do do, less than 800 cases a year, um, but the government funds them to maintain CRNA services for a full-time position, which is 2,048 hours a year. And that doesn't include call or anything else that is all lumped in there. That's how they work at the hospital. Then doesn't bill for the Medicare uh, anesthesia bill. They get basically that covered, but you know, the ASA is trying to, to get approved for that. I just don't see the financial ability to make that happen. Yeah. I, 
I agree. I, I totally understand their perspective and why they're trying to, to move that, that agenda, that looks like agenda. But the challenge is, I mean, the math doesn't work, right? So they, they, these facilities uh, are, are typically in, in rural areas that are not necessarily all that attractive to live in from a, from a lifestyle perspective. Uh, and they're, diff- they're very challenging to recruit even CRNA. I uh, imagine, you know, and we're already seeing the challenges that these facilities are having recruiting surgical specialists. And then you're, you're going to say, okay, now we're going to increase the compensation in order to get an anesthesiologist in an area that may have never had an anesthesiologist. I just don't see the value to the system, uh, especially in a system where uh, we're already spending way too much on healthcare. What, mm-hmm. How does that value change anyone's life? Well, there has to be, there has to be a return on investment, you know? So, you know, if, if there were a lot of problems in rural facilities where CRNAs only worked and patients were, you know, you know, having complications that they otherwise wouldn't have, this would be a different conversation. Um, but that would be eliminated alone by liability costs. That's not the case. You know, in fact, just the opposite has happened. We're getting great outcomes. Patients are doing just as well, if not better, than they are in city centers. In small rural facilities with dedicated CRNAs and surgeons who want to service those those facilities. And so if you know, if you really want to look at an unbiased opinion about whether or not CRNAs are safe, all you have to do is talk to an actuary for any of the liability insurance companies that we use. It doesn't cost any more for me to work independently for my malpractice insurance than it does if I was working in a one-to-one ratio with a physician anesthesiologist. Well, you know, that's, that's a function of risk. Actuaries don't care about us or them. They don't even know about these battles and, and it's irrelevant to them. They just look at historical risk, cost, payout, and they value that service. If I was less safe, my insurance would be twice as much if not impossible to attain. And that's not what's happening. So if you can't prove value, that's where we're at. We're in a value society now, right? Consumerism is exactly it. If you can't prove that there's a benefit to that, then we're not going to spend more money on it because there's no money in the system to spend, ultimately. And and so it's interesting, you know, I don't know if everybody who's listening appreciates the fact that the ANA owns a malpractice insurance company that uh, provides malpractice insurance to CRNAs. And I can tell you, as the CEO of, of the ANA and um, the president of the board of our insurance company, that every year our premiums go down. And that's because CRNAs are extraordinarily safe and getting safer every year. Uh, and uh, if there were liability issues with CRNA-only practice, we would know about it. And, and, and the numbers don't lie. And uh, CRNA malpractice insurance is is the premiums are declining every year, which is great for the profession. Not so great when you look at the revenue, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ultimately, mean, that's right. You know, yeah. Uh, you know, as the saying goes, faith, faith in God, everyone else bring data. And that's ultimately where we're at. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that's where we're at in healthcare. Hasn't always been that way, but we're heading down that road like a snow sled going down a 90 degree slope. I mean, it, it's yeah. happening faster than it ever has. It's so accelerated. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for the interview. It's been great. A lot of fun to have this chat, and we'll do it again. We'll do another part to this and uh, have another discussion. And it was great chatting with the ANA CEO, Dr. Randall Moore. Uh, thank you, Mike. I really enjoyed it. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. 
For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 